Good morning. So you know that this is Dr. Matt Russell's last Sunday here, and I encourage you after this class to amble over to the sanctuary and hear him preach. Uh, and then after that, there will be a reception for him here. I think that's a wrong word. Because reception is when you receive somebody, not when you push them away. Right? <laughs> so Matt gave me a going away present today. And I should not be giving him a going away present. <laughs> Matt gave me a copy of a book called God is Disappointed in You. And if you don't know about this book, it's a synopsis of the Bible, and it's really hilarious. And um, now this will cause you to go on Amazon and buy it today, I'll bet. It's offensive. <laughs> I know this crowd. You will do that. So um, just to show you, in case you also don't know this, how valued Matt is, that a few weeks ago, about six weeks ago or so, his work uh, uh, for Iconoclast got a grant from the Lilly Foundation uh, for Curate, Project Curate, thank you, for a million dollars. Yeah. So he'll be taking that money with him. <laughs> I don't blame him. But Matt's um, been doing a wonderful job in the community and what he's going to be very, very, very missed. So I want to tell you about something. I want to make you aware of a special education opportunity. Is Diane Shinky here? She's probably singing in the choir, getting ready to. Diane's a longtime member here at St. Paul's. And as a result of what um, she has been hearing here through the um, emails and, and the website, she has offered um, to do an educational offering here at St. Paul's that will begin this coming Tuesday night for eight weeks, and it's based on this document that uh, Holly and I have been using some in our teaching, the um, Reclaiming Jesus document. It will be Tuesday nights, 30, uh, 6.30 to 8 in room S312, and um, I've looked at what she is going to be doing, and Sherry and I are going to be attending this. Um, I know that's a commitment of your time, but uh, for a small group discussion and digging deeper into this Reclaiming Jesus thing, um, I really, really encourage you, if you can, and if you have, well, whether you have the energy or not, um, do it. I think it will be a really helpful thing to do. Make yourself a New Year's resolution to do this. Attend this class. I made just one New Year's resolution this year, and that is to get a new pair of glasses. And then I'll see what happens.
don't know what's going to happen. I don't have 2020 vision. So how are you doing? Good? You're doing well? Your practice going well? Is your practice going well? Don't look like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I'm really, really grateful to you. And I want to say hello to the pajama people out there or to the wine and cheese people. And I thank William and Olivia and everybody who makes it possible for this to happen. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So since this is the first of the year, I thought that we would spend just a little bit of time today kind of reflecting on where we've been the last two years and uh, then getting some notion of where we'll be going uh, in the months ahead. I love timelines. You like timelines? When, um, when, when we're on the international flight, I always look at the flight screen monitor on the back of the seat in front of me. I'm not interested in a movie or anything like that. I want to know. I, lo I, lo I love to see the point of origin and then to see that little line get longer and longer and go out over the ocean and start praying that the engine <laughs> keep working all the way to the point of destination. We've been on some flights, I think it was British Airways, I'm not sure, where they even had um, TV cameras and they had one in the tail fin at the back so you could see over the fuselage in the direction the plane is going and they had a camera that pointed directly down at the earth. So you could see the territory going, boring, really boring. <laughs> I hear that they're going to take these things out of airplanes now. Because um, almost everybody, when they get on a flight, has a device of some kind. And you'll be able to pair your device with some Wi-Fi thing in the airplane so that um, you can watch this on your device and they can make the space between you and this seat in front of you even smaller. <laughs> the first time I was on a commercial aircraft flight simulator with Captain Bill Nogus, he uh, said, if you get airsick, start getting airsick, just look, do what we do, uh, and that is don't look out the window. He said, we pilots almost never look out the window. We look at the instrument panel. And, and really, if you've ever been in the front of an airplane, the view from the front of an aircraft is very, very different than looking out the side window because the horizon seems to do this sort of thing all the time. And I thought, well, that should be easy for a lot of people to do because that's what drivers do in Houston all the time. <laughs> Except they don't look at the instrument panel, they look at their phone. We were out walking our dog the other day, and um, there was a car parked in the middle of the, one of the streets, and um, just dead still. And we walked past it, and I looked in, and there was a person in the car doing this. And I kept looking back at them, practicing being non-judgmental. I feel compassion for these people, really. 
and for the increasing number of people who have spent tens of thousands of dollars on cars and for some reason did not opt for the accessory package that includes turn signals. <laughs> Don't know why that is. <clears throat> I remember the first time we rafted the Grand Canyon uh, our guide was trying to give us some sense of the enormous amount of time it took to carve the Grand Canyon. And so he held out his hands like this and he said, imagine that this side of my fingertips is the beginning of when the Grand Canyon started and this is where it is today. My fingernail on this finger is how long we have been here comparatively speaking. Here's something I stole from Ilya Delio. And she said, imagine you have a library, in your library, a shelf, a shelf that contains 30 large books. Each book is 450 pages long. Each page stands for one million years. The Big Bang takes place on page one of volume one. The first 20 volumes, you can see not much happens. Lifeless, physical, chemical, stellar, galactic process. Life is in no, life as we know it, is in no hurry to make its appearance. Our solar system uh, begins in the volume 21, about 4.5 billion years ago. Life remains single cell until toward the end of volume 29. It's a 30-volume set. The Cambrian explosion occurs. Then the complexity of life explodes. Still, dinosaurs don't show up until around the middle of volume 30. They go extinct on page 384. Only the last 66 pages or so feature what Brian Swim calls a flaring fourth of mammalian life. Human creatures begin to show up a few pages from the end of volume 30. But anatomically modern humans make their appearance only about halfway down page 450. Self-reflective subjectivity, ethical aspiration, religious quest for rightness arrive in the universe only in the last paragraph of the last page of the last volume. Now, one of the major things that we've talked about in the last two years is the fact that there are two ways of thinking that developed in our cosmos or on our planet that have become limiting and, uh, for our own growth and the health of the planet. And if you remember, I call these things cosmological dualism and individual salvation. Now, just be aware that these things did not evolve at the time humans evolved or self-consciousness evolved. These things themselves evolved over a period of time. Um, by the way, I didn't invent these terms. These are terms I got from a philosopher whose name is Loyal Rue. I think it's a great name. And they are a way to understand part of the evolutionary process that we have been part of. They are not difficult terms to understand at all. Cosmological dualism means that there grew a split, a division, 
between material things and spiritual. So that you, most of us have grown up thinking that there's a division between sacred and secular, between heaven and earth. Um, you know, people talk about the afterlife. People talk about going to heaven when you die or going to hell or, or not. Individual salvation focuses on your immortality, on your morality. And even though evangelical Christianity, as well as other forms of Christianity and in some other religious systems, have the belief that you are saved by having faith in Jesus, accept Jesus as your personal Savior, and you will go to heaven when you die. That's the doctrine. But in spite of that, there's also emphasis on how you behave. You don't play cards, you don't dance, you don't associate with those people who do. You got to be good to make it. It's always seemed to me to be quite a contradiction that, you know, you should be able just to accept Jesus and do whatever you want to, but it doesn't work that way. Now, these, these distinctions are found in every religious system in one way or another. In every religious system, in one way or another. They were not, however, always part of humanly constructed religions. These things evolved over time. How did this happen? How did these two things come to be? Just like at one time, there was no sun-centered understanding of our solar system. Earth was the center of things, and Europe was the center of the earth, and England was the center of that or Rome, depending on your point of view. And then Copernicus came along, and that turned everything up. So how did these things happen? Well, as human communities grew more complex after the agricultural revolution and the gradual transformation of tribes into cities, empires, violence in human communities grew exponentially. Homo sapiens inherited from our reptilian ancestors neurological systems that caused us to be interested, at least very early in our evolutional development, in status, power, sex, personal gain, and survival. I'd say we haven't changed very much. These drives give birth to behaviors and beliefs that are all about me. One of the first things that I was taught in the field of psychology was that the inherited neurological system that humans even have right now cause us to react instinctually to unexpected events in one of four ways. Do I, you're walking in the jungle, something jumps out, or you encounter something, and you have to decide, do I fight it? Am I strong enough to beat this thing that's come to me? Do I run from it? Do I flee it? You know, get the heck out of Dodge. Do I feed on it? Is this something that I can take home and eat? Or do I mate with it? <laughs> These are commonly called in psychology the four Fs. 
I bet you go by God is disappointed in you. You're that, you're that kind of group. However, in four distinctly different geographical regions on the earth, there arose sages, prophets, mystics, who were led to higher spiritual developmental areas because of their revulsion to the violence that had reached unprecedented heights uh, because of human complexity. And these sages, prophets, and mystics did not come to their new insight on lonely mountaintops or in desert retreats. Um, they, they were um, living in societies not unlike our own, which experienced increased political conflict. And, and one very simple way to explain what goes on in our cranium is to say that the brain is made up of three parts. Our reptilian brain, our mammalian brain, and the cerebral cortex, or what we call the human brain. Now, we use those first two brains to deal with these issues of power, control, territory, sex, uh, potential gains, survival, those kinds of things. And it's said that we use the human brain only to about 15% of its capacity. And we use the human brain to rationalize the stuff we do with the reptilian brain. You know how you do stuff, and then you make up a reason for why you did it. Or you attribute it to Satan. Even though we think we're modern, we do something that is offensive. The reaction is to say, God, I don't know what got into me. Something got into me that made me do this. And maybe a thousand years from now, the people then will look back on us and they will say, you know, those people didn't use their brains very well. One of my colleagues has written... There is no need for us to change the world. I say, let's toilet train the world. And then we'll never have to change it again. As you've probably noticed, we humans have pretty, left a pretty stinky diaper. And now it's time for the children of God to evolve into the adults of God. We just seem to be stuck in that awkward in-between stage called adult essence. Our essence has been addled by toxic beliefs and myth perceptions. That's brilliant. Now, although love or self-enlightened self-interest might well be valued in tribes, tribes themselves pretty well live reflexively out of the four Fs. Do I fight it, feed it, feed on it, or mate with it? And that led to the slaughter of people in other tribes. And so uh, the sages all over the globe, even though they didn't have the internet, even though they weren't connected with each other, in these four distinct places, they came up uh, with, with something else. The sages knew that if the, the people acquired greater technology, they would kill greater. So around 900 BC, and it happened independently in China, India, Persia, Judea, Greece, these ideas arose. Carl Jaspers calls it the actual age, meaning a time of great turning. 
Karen Armstrong refers to it as the birth of the age of compassion, and I have referred to it as the evolution of the religion of rightness. And um, we're going to be talking about this evolution of the religion of rightness uh, as we go forward. This is one of the things that we will be spending time. So this is a time when the Upanishads were composed. It was the time of Buddha. It was the time of Confucius, of Laosé, of Isaiah, of Ezekiel, of Ezra, of Socrates. And all these rose up at one time, uh, not overnight, but the understanding was that there were right ways to be in the human community. There were right ways to behave. And as I said, you will not find a religion that is devoid of this. And the summary statement of this religious conviction would be, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or, don't do something to someone that you would not want done to you. It's the evolution of religion of compassion and the, the religion of right behavior. So you see this in the Ten Commandments. You see this in uh, the sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You see this in the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, a way of behaving, of doing correctly. Now, by the way, the people who led in this evolution of rightness, we call them saints. And uh, what the saint is, is a person who has moved away from the reptilian brain and they inhabit the human brain more and more. They were aware. Buddha was once asked, are you a saint? No. Are you an angel? No. Are you a god? No. Then what are you? And Buddha said, I am awake. This is not in my notes, but there is no way to move into this occupying of this kind of mind. without having a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> you just can't do it. It will not happen. So up until the time, uh, the connection between life on earth and some of the life, uh, up until this time, that was not distinguishable. There was another realm, but all you had to do to get there was to die. And if you were wealthy enough, you took your slaves with you or whoever it was, they got put in the grave with you. But it wasn't a matter of morality. It was just another, another place to be. And no evidence that morality played a role in any of this until the axial age of the religion of rightness developed. And after that, good behavior became very, very important. The Eightfold Path would lead you to liberation. There was a difference between this world and the world of reward or punishment. Uh, nirvana, reincarnation, freedom from, another, from a life of suffering, freedom uh, from hell, access to heaven. This is the emphasis that led to cosmological dualism. Got it? This life and another one. Nirvana, heaven, whatever, and individual salvation. This is based on how you behave. This makes sense, this development of these two terms. They were not always part of the thinking of the religion. They developed. And what we are witnessing in our lives is the end of this actual age. 
Cosmological dualism and individual salvation have had their run. They're no longer workable. They no longer fit what we know about the nature of the cosmos. Some people find this very exciting, and some people find it terrifying because it means we have to rethink everything. What you see going on in this country, as well as other developed countries around the world, is the collective reptilian brain at work. Fear is running the show. And as I have said numerous times, scared people do scary things. Frightened people do frightening things. And they use their human brain to rationalize and justify these reactionary beliefs and behaviors. In one of the religious journals I take, there was an article recently about religious liberty. We all believe in religious liberty. A new report from the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia Law School states, quote, while the Christian right has positioned itself as the sole defender of religious liberty, this movement's strategy is to substitute the beliefs of a narrow band of conservative Christianity for the nation's broad pluralistic religious traditions. And accompanying this article to illustrate the point was a photograph of a Muslim man holding a sign that says, in a nation founded by the religiously oppressed, it seems an odd thing to oppress people based on religion. Now, the core teachings of this first axial age, the core teachings, we can still embrace. That core teaching is about compassion. I think I mentioned in the preview that went out about this, this class, Shane Claiborne says that what we do is that we ingest the past, we chew it up, we spit out the bones, and we swallow what's truly nurturing for the journey ahead. Or to use Ken Wilber's phrase, we transcend. We don't put it away. We incorporate it and transcend. That's the way we move forward. And why are we doing this? We do this because the story that once held various cultures together is no longer true. The story, what we're looking for is a new story. Because the story that once held cultures together is proving by the new evolutionary cosmology that it doesn't work anymore. That makes sense? Am I making sense to you? This little boy uh, went to his sister one day and said, where did I come from? Where do babies come from? And she said, well, the stork brought you, just like a stork brought me. So he went to his mother and asked her, where did I come from? How are babies born? And the mother was not quite ready for this conversation with her son. So she said, well, the stork brought you just like a stork brought me. A few days later, when he was visiting with his grandmother, he put the same set of questions to her. Where do babies come from? How did I get here? And she replied, well, the stork brought you just like the stork brought me. Later, he went to his room and added to the report on his family history he was writing for a school project. There hasn't been a natural birth in our family for three generations. <laughs> the old story doesn't work anymore. The stork story doesn't work anymore. You know, we've looked back, at least I have. I have been guilty of this. 
at the churches, I'm talking now about the Roman Catholic Church, unwillingness to uh, accept and embrace the findings of Copernicus and Galileo. We made fun of the uh, Catholic churches only forgiving Galileo in 1992. 1992. You're just as unenlightened. You know, in many churches, uh, Southern Baptist, my heritage among them, there's a strong emphasis on complementarianism. You know what that is? Complementarianism is where the husband is the clear head of the house. They include in the wedding ceremony, the wife says, to honor and obey and, and this keeps the patriarchy thing going on, you see. I asked Sherry if we could put that in our service. <laughs> and she said, sure, as long as you say it. So. <laughs> it well, the, the problem is that, that, that and, and this movement is loud in our culture. It's growing in the globe, not diminishing. And what it keeps alive is the notion that we're not equal. You know, if it weren't so scary, white nationalism would be laughable. There's no superior race. And yet, not only have we yet to come to terms with this country's original sin of slavery, a destructive and dangerous belief that has been contained for a good while, but it's raising its head all over the globe now, I, I'm in the, the process of reading Jonathan Walton's book, 12 Lies, 12 Lies That Hold America Captive. And, and I will tell you, this is not an easy book to read because it contains stuff that most proud Americans, to use that phrase, do not want to confront. I'll read you what's on the book's jacket. America is a Christian nation. All men are created equal. We are the land of the free and the home beloved of the brave, except when we're not. These commonly held ideas break down in the light of hard realities, the study of scripture, and faithful Christian witness. The president is not the Messiah, the Constitution is not the Bible, and the United States is not a city set on a hill or the hope for the world. The proclaimed hope of America rings most hollow for native peoples, people of color, the rural poor, and other communities pressed to the margin. Jonathan Walton exposes the cultural myths and misconception about America's identity, focusing on its manipulation of Scripture and the person of Jesus. He redirects us to the true promises found in the gospel. Walton defines how American ideology and way of life has become a false religion and shows that orienting our lives around American nationalism is idolatry. The cultural notions of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are at odds with the call to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Ultimately, our place in America is distinct from our place in the family of Jesus. Discover how the kingdom of God offers true freedom and justice for all. That's another path that we're going to be looking at. What does it mean to really follow Jesus? If you grew up in the United States and you had any kind of religious background, 
you were indoctrinated with American white folk religion. There's not a one of us who didn't inherit that. American white folk religion is very different from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a new story for a new actual age, and our task, our spiritual theological work, is to embrace it. Now, we don't have to create that story. That's taken care of. But we do have to become aware of it. We have to embrace it. It's not a story that's coming from the church. It's not a story that's coming from the Bible, though I am going to use the pattern of Jesus and his teachings to encourage, enable, and empower us to embrace it. What I'm talking about is the story of evolution. This universe in which we live, this field of energy we call the cosmos, is not a place where evolution happens. It is the evolution happening. It's not a stage on which the drama unfolds. It is the unfolding drama itself. If ever there was a candidate for a universal story, it must be this story of cosmic evolution. Got that memorized? Now, those are not my words. Those are the words of that philosopher, Loyal Rue, that I have been quoting and reading. Um, this is a future that's always been true. Like the sun has always been the center of the solar system. We just didn't know it as humans for a long time. And then we came to that and it caused a paradigm shift in the way that we think about how energy is and how matter operates, right? And this has not always been the consciousness of human beings. This is something that's coming into our awareness, something that we have to get our minds around. Now, there are many, many reasons I'm using Jesus and his teachings as a platform and a roadmap going forward. I'm not going to go into all of them now. But one main reason uh, is to do my part in uh, combating the incredible religious illiteracy, stupidity, and distortion that's going on about Christianity in our culture. So this being the first week in 2020, and... Um, we're still in the Christmas season. Christmas ends tomorrow or after tomorrow, right? The 12th day of Christmas is tomorrow. So I'm still listening to Christmas music. I love Christmas music. So I want to take advantage of that story to kind of give us a, a leap forward into the, the future. You know, one of the people that we look back on now and call a saint is Meister Eckhart. And he did his work in the middle of the 13th century. And I'll read you something he, he wrote. Here in time, we're celebrating the eternal birth, which God the Father, uh, tolerates his language. He didn't know any better, but he was a saint, all right? Here in time, we're celebrating the eternal birth, which God the Father bore and bears unceasingly in eternity. Because this same birth is now born in time in human nature. St. Augustine says, what does it avail me that this birth is always happening if it does not happen in me? That it should happen in me is what matters. We shall therefore speak of this birth of how to make it take place in us. Now what Eckhart and Augustine are saying is this. What's good, what good is it to me? or to anyone whose life I touch, 
If I believe that Mary gave birth to someone who came to be experienced as the son of God, if I don't give birth to that same expression, God in, in us, touching lives. We are all meant to be the mothers of God. So one of the things that I want to encourage you to do, to be open to as we go forward, is learn how to read the Bible um, differently. I think, yes, knowing what Jesus really said is important. I want to be a Jesus scholar and a biblical scholar in that sense. I think bringing the best contemporary biblical scholarship to the, the writings that we have in Christian scripture is absolutely essential. I'm going to continue to do that. But the Jesus story is mostly meant to be read metaphorically. Right? I had a slide in the announcement slides every Sunday this past year. I took it out this year uh, because I th think I made the point. But I, I want to repeat it one more time today. It's one of the quotes that the leading living authority on the planet, the leading authority about Jesus on the planet today, John Dominic Crossan says. Crossan says, my point once again is not that these ancient, those ancient people told literal stories and we're now smart enough to take them symbolically, but they told them symbolically and we're now dumb enough to take them literally. <laughs> Folks, the birth parables, uh, the birth narratives are parables. The point in the story that there's no room for Mary and Joseph in the inn is a parable. It's a metaphor. It was told to tell people that they need to make room in their lives for the birth of Jesus. You have to open if you're going to receive the story into your life. We have to give birth to Christ in our lives, in our work, in our being, in our personhood. And this teaching makes for a Christmas that's filled with responsibility and joy and possibility. What, what a privilege to be invited by the sacred mystery to make manifest God's presence on earth. That's what we're invited to do. Uh, in our culture, though, this powerful story, as Jackie Lewis puts it, gets commodified and empired, right? Both, well, this cartoon says it all to me. On my two biggest days of the year, I'm upstaged by fictional characters. <laughs> the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. So five years ago, um, we began what has now become a new Christmas tradition. Every Christmas Eve for 30 years now, I've been forced enough to be involved in several of the Christmas Eve services. What I mean by that, being fortunate enough to be involved, is that I don't have to worry about having a place to sit. If you're in the Chancellor, taken care of. Place to park, no, because we get there early enough. When, when I first started here at St. Paul's, we had two services, Christmas Eve services. Five now. Five. I, and I jokingly tell people that on Christmas Eve, after the last service I'm involved in, I become Jewish. <laughs> because years ago, we started the tradition after the last service, which is at 8 o'clock then, to go get Chinese food. 
And um, so I play my seniority card now and say that the last service I will be in is a six o'clock service. And then as a family, we all go out and have Chinese food. We've been doing this for years. Five years ago, when we uh, went home after our time together, I turned on the television. And I'm always interested on Christmas Eve to see what religious services will be broadcast. If there's a mass from Notre Dame, I like to watch that. There was not a mass at Notre Dame this year for the first time in 200 years. Did you know that? Yeah. There wasn't much on this year of anything. But five years ago, five years ago, we went home and, and there was a show that was just starting on PBS and we were instantly captivated by it. It's called A Christmas Carol, The Concert. And I was so smitten with this that I went to their website and I bought about 15 copies of this DVD. And I checked on Amazon and you can still buy one. I encourage you to do it. 30 bucks, hour and a half program. It's just really wonderful. The people who sing in this, um, the woman who narrates it, they have just wonderful voices. I want to read you what one reviewer said. Quote, a superb cast of five, an orchestra and chorus come together in the most imaginative, wonderful, exciting version of the story since CBS presented a version starring George C. Scott in the early 80s. Minimally costumed and masterfully, though understatedly staged before a theater audience, it's one that shouldn't be missed. It's the standout among this year's standouts. Great review. So have you seen it? Anybody seen it? No. Oh, God, you're in for such a treat. The Dickens Christmas Carol is a story about transformation that transforms. You know the story. Old Scooge, what a wonderful name. I don't know how Dickens came up with that. There's even a story about that, but... But you know the story. He won't give Bob Cratchit the time of day. He's very resentful about taking time off for Christmas, spend with his family. He originated the phrase, bah, humbug, about Christmas. He gleefully turns down those who come asking for donations for the poor. He's a mean-spirited old man sitting in his counting house on Christmas Eve, reacting to everyone and everything with bitterness and venom. And later that evening, he returns to his cold, dark apartment, and he receives a chilling visitation from the ghost of his dead partner, Jacob Marley. And as a punishment for his greedy, self-serving life, Marley's spirit has been condemned to walk the earth in chains. He, he hopes to save Scrooge from the same fate. So he tells Scrooge, you're going to have three visitors tonight. Scrooge shrugs this off, something that's a bit of undigested cheese, bad food, falls into sleep. Sure enough, this first spirit appears and escorts Scrooge through a journey on the past. Christmas is from Scrooge's earliest years. He revisits his childhood, his apprenticeship with a jolly merchant, his engagement to a woman who turns Scrooge down because Scrooge prefers money more than relationship. And Scrooge sees this, and he's he'd moved to tears. Then the ghost of Christmas present appears and takes Scrooge through the London where he lives to unveil Christmas as it's going to happen this year. Scrooge watches the Cratchit family prepare a very meager feast. His heart is warmed by Cratchit's crippled son, Tiny Tim. 
Then he's taken to his nephew's house, and there part of the conversation at the table is about what a miserable man the old miser must be. And then comes the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And this ghost leads Scrooge through a series of scenes that lead to an unnamed man's recent death. Scrooge sees businessmen discussing the dead man's riches. How much did he leave, asked one. Oh, he left it all. And they laugh. You didn't, but they did. He sees some vagabonds trading some of his personal effects for cash. He sees a poor couple expressing relief at the death of their unforgiving creditor. And, and Scrooge is anxious to learn the lesson of this ghost, and he begs to know who's the dead man. So he's taken to a churchyard, to, to a gravestone, and the ghost points to a grave, and Scrooge stoops down and brushes away the snow and leaves, and there he reads his own name. He pleads with the Spirit to alter his fate promising to renounce his insensitive and, and avarice ways and to honor Christmas with all his heart if he just had the chance. And suddenly he finds himself tucked safely in his own bed. He's overwhelmed with joy by the chance to redeem himself. And he's grateful that when he wakes up, it is now Christmas Day. And he throws open the window to his apartment and shouts out to the boy down below, what day is it? It's still Christmas? Yes, it's Christmas. And that turkey that was hanging in the shop window, is it still there? Yes, it's still there. And he throws money and says, go get that and take it to Bob Cratchit's house. And then he goes and attends his nephew's party. And as the years go by, he holds true to his promise. And he honors Christmas with all of his heart. He treats Tiny Tim as if he were his own child. He provides lavish gifts for the poor. He treats his fellow human beings with kindness and generosity and warmth. Bob Cratchit comes to work the next day and Scrooge pretends to chew him out. Cratchit is terrified. Scrooge says, Bob, Bob, I'm going to give you a raise. Put another scuttle of coal in the fire. So sometimes people will say to me, either as a theologian or as a psychologist, do people change? Well, no. We're still, you are pretty much the same person you were in the first grade. That's not the question. The question is, are we willing to be transformed? We can be transformed, and I've been privileged over the years to see it happen over and over and over again. And it may look like it takes a long time, but it happened like that. It's like when somebody decides to sober up, not when they decide to stop drinking. Those are different things. They may have struggled with the matter for years, but they stop in an instant. We'll talk more about that next Sunday, too. Now, the gateways of transformation are two, great love or great suffering. They can drive us into the heart of the sacred. And my belief, born out of experience, is that a daily spiritual practice greases the wheels and helps us to be able to deal with great love and suffering when they come our way. Otherwise, 
we face the great issues and events of life only with our reptilian brain, not with the new brain, not with the human brain. Now, we cannot achieve transformation. It's a gift. It, 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 you receive it. It's, it's like real sobriety. The, the, the first year after being licensed, I, I did um, almost two years of work with the Department of Psychiatry at Baylor, and the only patient population I saw were alcoholics and their families. And I got to know a lot about AA through that whole process, and things that earlier I might have looked at as shallow sayings I saw. So profound, one day at a time. Take it easy is a great phrase in AA. Take it easy. What it means is don't jerk it. Just receive it. Take the gift. Easy. Just take it easy. We nurture openness to our ability to be present to presence so that when the opportunity comes, we're ready and, and willing. Now, trust me on what I'm about to say. 2020, there will be countless invitations to step into this awareness. Religion easily gets caught up in arguments about what's true, what doctrine is right. That's not what the world needs. That's not what you need. What the world needs is people who know and practice compassion. The Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. Jesus said, this is my commandment. I want you to love one another. When we step into the story of evolution, we know everything is okay. And we begin to get it. Your life is not about you. You are about life. We don't have to navigate the river. We're already flowing in it. I don't know why, but it seems to take a long time to get to where we already are. Our wonderful opportunity is to intentionally participate in the mystery that has always been our true self. We practice it, and here's today's class in one sentence. We practice it by being compassionate to everyone now. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you.